Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we give an update on Westminster politics and the path ahead for the UK amidst a cost of living crisis, with Miles Sherry, wealth manager, Olivia Gleeson, UK government relations expert, and Will Hobbs, chief investment officer. If you are new to investing, want to learn more about investing, or want tips on how to manage your long-term financial plans, check out our sister podcast channel, Money Plan, available on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Hello, and welcome to this latest edition of Word on the Street. Now, we thought we'd centre the discussion today around the cost of living crisis that we continue to sadly see here in the UK, and who better to review this with an Olivia, our resident guru on all things Westminster, who will give us the latest perspective from a political lens and also the ever reassuring voice of Will, who I'll be posing some questions and concerns to that myself and others have picked up from speaking directly to investors in what continues to be, in truth, a pretty complex environment fueled by yet another huge UK inflation print. So, Olivia, whilst the race to be the next prime minister was looking hot in a similar manner, really, to our our second heat wave, things do look to have cooled down a little bit on both fronts. Do you think that's a fair assumption or could there actually still be some surprises to come in terms of the final running? We just can't get away from a weather analogy on uh, <laughs> this podcast. We have to do it. <laughs> um, no, I think you're right. You know, we have just about reached, you know, fever pitch in the uh, leadership election. It's hard to believe there's still another two weeks uh, or so to go. But I think, you know, ballot papers uh, started landing on doorstops a few weeks ago. And I think I saw a poll this morning saying that about 60% of members say they have already voted. Those are the members we know about, of course, and not the ones we don't. But, you know, since then, we've obviously seen sort of torrent of, you know, leadership campaign activity. We've seen TV debates, interviews, hustings across the UK, all the way up to um, when voting is going to close on the 2nd of September with the winner announced on the 5th of September. But I think, you know, as I've mentioned polls already, in terms of the latest predictions, you know, all the signs are pointing in uh, Liz Truss's direction at this point. She's polling consistently higher with members. She's receiving media backing. And most importantly, she's sort of receiving... A lot of support from MPs, I think it's overtaken by the Rishi's numbers that he had um, at sort of the start of the election race. And we've also seen some sort of quite high profile deflections from Rishi's camp as well. So I think, uh, you know, it's probably going to take a bit of a political earthquake to swing things in Rishi's favour at this this late stage if he's going to have any chance at all before voting closes on the second. Got you. And, and what about their policies? It might just be worth delving into those a little briefly, particularly relevant to the cost of living crisis. Liz Truss has been pretty frank, really, hasn't she, around her view that the Bank of England is, well, failing in regards to inflation, which rose to a little over 10% this week. And there's been some more talk around uh, around that, I saw. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, inflation, economic stability, energy bills, tax cuts, you know, those are the issues that have dominated the race so far. And I think, as I've discussed before on the podcast, with, with when there were more candidates even than just two, you know, borrowing in order to fund tax cuts whilst inflation remains high is that clear dividing line. Now, probably fair to deep dive on trust, uh, given the polling. You know, yeah. she's, she's centred her campaign on cutting taxes. We know she wants to reverse the national insurance rise. She wants to axe the proposed rise in corporation tax and cut green levies on energy bills. Now, <clears throat> essentially, her approach is sort of modelled on what she would describe as true Thatcherite principles of the small state and free market capitalism. I mean, everyone's sort of referencing 
Thatcher uh, at the moment. She definitely seems to be back and popular. But I think, you know, more recently, Truss has sort of spoken this week about how she'd ensure that Number 10 has sort of what she describes as the ultimate authority over economic policy. Now, reading between the lines there, I think she feels that, you know, under Boris Johnson's government, maybe there wasn't that sort of economic heft in Downing Street to challenge the status quo or the orthodoxy she would describe on economic policy. And she feels that the Treasury, you know, they focus too much on tax and spend and not enough on growth. And she sort of wants to take a little bit more risk. And I think the same can be said for her attitude towards the Bank of England. I think, you know, she wants to examine uh, their independence on interest rates, sort of prompted by concerns as to whether they could have taken bold action sooner. So it, it, it's new ground uh, she's treading on now, but definitely uh, lots of interest to come, particularly on sort of uh, how she'll treat the Bank of England and regulators more widely if she were to be elected. Yeah, well, and just expanding on that inflation print, I think it was the highest in something like 40 years or so, wasn't it? I mean, it's mm. just eye-watering mm. stuff and ab- above market expectations as well. So what's the team's latest views on the path ahead for the UK relative to, say, the US as the most logical comparison? The market has again readjusted those future rate expectations, hasn't it? And let's be frank, it seems like we're looking at a bleak winter to come, which will sadly hit many very hard and in turn spark further recession fears. Yes. Gosh, it's hard. Yeah, I hate being the voice of doom here. But I mean, I think the first thing to point out is, you know, as you well know, as everyone well knows on this uh, this podcast, that, you know, there should be a high degree of uncertainty when we're talking about the short term path of inflation. And inflation is really, you know, in the driving seat at the moment. Both of those facts have been rammed home repeatedly this year. Now, in the last couple of weeks, the trajectory of surprises, you know, some would argue, seems to be diverging a little bit between the UK and the US on this front. Certainly this last week, we've seen more worrisome labour market data from the perspective of inflation and, you know, that that that, that super hot inflation print, print you referenced there. Whereas in the US, some are arguing you've seen the temperature come down a little bit, uh, just looking at certain measures of long term inflation expectations and actually that, you know, a spot inflation that came the other way and actually was uh, was was a, was a welcome undershoot of expectations. However, as you know, we are incredibly wary of overconfidence here. The risks associated with inflation becoming entrenched remain high in both the US and the UK. Um, To that end, both economies may have to administer quite a bit more central bank interest rate kind of pain that these economies might have quite a bit more to choke down conceivably. That doesn't have to be the case, uh, but it's just, in our opinion, you know, those risks are sort of, you know, rising. And unfortunately, there's not really a way around that for central bankers. We know for a fact that, you know, given the choice between a recession in the near term and spiraling inflation, you know, in the medium term, on the other hand, the former will be much less deleterious for, for the many on the front line of this cost of living crisis. So it is it, it is essential that central banks raise interest rates expeditiously or whatever the word they want to use for in order to bring inflation and those all important inflation expectations back to heel. If there's a recession in the way that there may well be, you know, that, that, that that's increasingly belief globally, as you know, that in the US and the UK, you may well see a recession. But the, the feeling is that that's a price worth paying to bring inflation to heel, if that's not too long winded and boring. I know I've said this <laughs> hundreds of times, yeah, but it, but it is. It's a very difficult moment for not just the UK, for everywhere, to be honest. But, but it, it, you're right that the UK outlook is particularly complicated, I would say, for a number of reasons. We've talked about that a lot in this podcast. But yes, you know, the months ahead are. Uh, likely tricky. We'll expand on some of that UK point shortly. But Olivia, 
pressure, let's be frank, is really building on the government right now, mm-hmm. isn't it, to, to come up with a solution. So do, do you think there's anything we should expect more imminently on that front? Yeah, definitely. I would agree with Will that, you know, the the intray of the next prime minister is looking particularly bleak in terms of what they're going to have to deal with. And I know there's a lot of scrutiny over whether sort of support for struggling households can wait uh, on the leadership election, but it looks like it is going to have to. Now, I think if we focus on trust again, not trying to hedge myself too much, but, you know, she's indicated she'll hold an emergency budget towards the end of September, which will include her support for for households this autumn, in particular to deal with energy bills. That being said, she has been a little bit vague on whether she would be willing to offer direct support or whether she's going to try to do it via her sort of tax-cutting narrative. I think she's being refused to be drawn until she has those latest statistics in front of her and really wants to wait until she's in office uh, to make announcements. But I think, you know, pressure is building. And I think on that, I would call out, you know, we've seen the first Labour breakthrough in many months on their proposals to tackle the cost of living just this week. You know, Keir Starmer's pledged to sort of freeze the price cap on energy bills until the end of March, costing, I think, 29 billion or something has actually generated a lot of positive sentiment. I think it's an overwhelmingly popular pledge with the public and Conservative voters. So that will add renewed pressure on the Prime Minister to do something. And I think the thing to look out for and whether, you know, how uh, acceptable or popular whatever move the next Conservative Prime Minister makes, I think it will come down to whether it's going to be targeted support just for vulnerable households or whether it will apply across the piece. And I think you know, the latter of which is clearly carrying public favour at the moment. So we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, absolutely. Very much a case of watch this space. But Will, let's come back to, to interest rates and perhaps approach it from a slightly different perspective, because most listeners will be UK based, I assume. And so the path here is more relevant for personal finances, if not, say, global portfolios, as, as you and the team often say. Now, clearly, when investing, you want to ensure you're doing so with excess cash that you can actually afford to invest and make sure you pay off high interest debts. So stuff like credit cards first. But that said, I'm seeing a lot more interest in paying off mortgages rather than adding to existing portfolios or maybe just starting investments from scratch. Now, the argument here is people are seeing maybe their fixed rates expire. And given the rise in UK rates we've just touched upon, they're starting to wonder if they're better off paying their mortgages off rather than investing any surplus cash they may have. Now, a year or two back, many felt with record low rates, expected returns over the long term were likely to be higher than the cost of debt. But let's be honest with ourselves, the argument, at least on paper, maybe doesn't look quite as clear. So it's a subjective point. We can't know for sure. But is it perhaps fair to say that paying debt like mortgages down at the expense of investing excess cash or even selling down portfolios to do so might not necessarily still be the best course of action to follow? Well, I'll dodge it, as you can <laughs> imagine. I mean, honestly, yeah, you think you've been down one. on that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a tricky one. Well, also, it's down to personal circumstances, you know. Do you know what I mean? A lot of it is down to sort of what makes sense for you, not just purely financially, but emotionally. You know, where is your stress point? Where are your stress points coming from financially and debt terms and so on? You know, so that really factors in as well as your estimation of where interest rates go and so on. I mean, the only things I would say would be, would be, be humble about your, ex, you you know, extrapolating what you see at the moment into the future. It's perfectly possible, for instance, and many people are betting on this in the world at the moment, that we return to the pre-2020, you know, 
macroeconomic tram lines where, you know, ever lower inflation and ever lower real interest rates were the story and that maybe we do that. And some people would argue that those have been the tram lines for many hundreds of years, not just the past few decades. But, you know, so, so that's the first point to make. And, and the other is, you know, it's understandable to worry about investment at the moment. You know, inflation, highly volatile markets, you know, interest rates, real and nominal, you know, moving around to the degree we haven't seen in a while. That's unnerving. But I think, you know, if at all possible, you know, our argument really generally with regards to, as you say, you know, with, with whatever you can afford to spare for the long term, if you're lucky enough to have something to squirrel away um, to get some sort of, you know, some of your savings to work for you, we recommend highly that a sizable chunk is deployed in a diversified globally, you know, globally diversified multi-asset class product. Now, that this it should simply be that you're, you know, you're sitting there over time. This is kind of a productivity hoovering engine in a way. What it does is it scoops up the rewards to global innovation, the incoming artificial intelligence revolution and other revolutions. And, and helpfully, what I would say from, from a sort of, you know, an investment perspective, and this is self-serving, obviously, but you talk about rising interest rates to that point and that is part of, you know, your diversified multi-asset class portfolio. So actually, from that perspective, you know, the price of the ticket to access all of that, you know, because combined with, you know, parts of the world, stock markets have fallen back quite a bit as well. So the price of the ticket to access all of that future innovation, which you're trying to get to, it's actually gone down a little bit. So remember what you're trying to access with these things. And that's that's the point is investment is not a one to two year game. You're not going to you know, you're not going to do well in, on that time frame. Well, not reliably. So that story is much better expanded over the long term. And that's really what we're trying to do is do that business. So, yeah, I've dodged it and gone down to quite a self-serving little <laughs> cul-de-sac. But, yeah, help me out. And I think the other point I'd add to that, right, is that investors in our range of portfolios and funds are obviously entrusting their money to us and paying us to, you know, to, to look at this stuff on a daily basis on their behalf. And that's obviously part of the reason why you and the team made that fantastic call to add to commodities in the first quarter of last year. That's been very relevant both to the performance of some of our portfolios, but also in relation to high inflation and the cost of living problem that we're trying to focus on. Now, the point I'd make here is after that incredible run, perhaps because parts of the asset class, such as oil prices, as an example, have fallen over the last month or so, I am starting to again see a few more investors and clients start to wonder if it's now time to reduce that long-term exposure. Again, it's a complex thing to summarize briefly, but interested to get the latest thoughts there. Yeah, no, I don't want to I don't want to get into it because actually what we need to do is, as you know, get JP or Luke or Sean or one of the guys, you know, or one of the guys from asset allocation, the real experts, the heroes in this, uh, uh, or, or the Paul Wessons and uh, uh, Patrick's of this world who actually, you know, were responsible for the for the call of you know, bringing more commodities at the right time uh, and oversimplifying that call a little bit. And they'll all be gnashing their teeth hearing this. But, uh, you know, in a way, you can imagine that the process that we run, um, they run, which is involved very simplistically and kind of mathematically imagining hundreds of thousands of different viable futures uh, and finding, you know, from that point in time and finding the mix of assets that would sit most kind of robustly and deliver the most, you know, likely all weather returns in amongst all of those many kind of viable futures. 
in that last essay, refresh, more of those futures contained inflation or problems in it. And, and in some sense, that's what you found is that the, you know, the, the increase in not just commodities, but the introduction of inflation linked bonds, the increase in alternative trading strategies, all those things have been very, very successful in helping portfolios to perform, portfolios and funds to perform very well. Now, the second point really is about the SAA process, which as you know, now you can't just think about commodities in isolation, and we've talked about this. So, you know, in a way, what we're not, or what the team are not trying to do is take an asset class in isolation and say, oh, it goes up, it goes down, I'll have less, I'll have more, and sort of assume that over time it balances out. Because what you've got to do is something slightly subtler than that, which is sort of introduce the idea that it has a varying relationship with other asset classes. Uh, and actually what you're trying to do is get an overall whole that's right for the world ahead rather than just sort of cherry pick individual bits that's sort of what you do with that other bit we often talk about the tactical asset allocation the short-term tweaks so we are in the process of sort of gearing up for the next um, SAA refresh, which is due next year. This is necessarily a very long-term, slow, deliberate um, you know, process. It takes time. I wouldn't want to second guess what, uh, what the commodities allocation would be there. But uh, it, what I can say is that the performance of not just this last SAA refresh, but the ones over the last decade gives us some faith that the machine, which and the people around it, which has been significantly augmented and tweaked with and sort of improved and fiddled with over the years, the product we have now from that, the SAA product we have now is one that should be highly satisfactory to all clients. And so we can have some faith that that continues. Hopefully the guys continue and so does the machine. Absolutely. And good to hear as ever, you guys are all over this kind of thing. And just as a reminder, perhaps for our newer listeners, when Will references the SAA there, he's referring to our strategic asset allocation, which is essentially where we would expect the bulk of portfolio returns to come from, given it's really our long term view of the world. Sorry, I know I slip into jargon. It's my last day before holidays. So, yeah. <laughs> clocking, off, clocking off early. Um, brilliant look thanks a lot guys great insights as ever have a great weekend to everyone when it comes and for those no doubt starting to prepare for some time off like will over the last week or two of august to coincide with the bank holiday do enjoy yourselves all investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance this podcast is not a personal investment recommendation